0: Welcome to Gleaning and Gathering. We are so thankful you've joined us today.
1: Why do you ask?
0: And uh, we're here in the studio with Kaylin. Yep, here I am. We are trying to, once again, share what we are gleaning and gathering from life.
1: Amen.
0: Got a great article this last week from my friend Andrea Colson, who shared this with me. It's called A Beautiful Farm... And it is an article published on FrontPorchRepublic.com. And it's by McKenna Snow. Mm. And I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to share a little bit, but also just some of the thoughts that we had. And one of our conversations at the dinner table last week centered around this idea of beauty. A beautiful farm for most of us. She says, beauty is difficult to define, but we know it when we see it. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There is an intuition that moves the human heart to recognize when something is truly beautiful or when something is certainly ugly. Articulating why in such cases can be tricky. However, since beauty is too often regarded as a quality determined by the individual beholder, Mm -hmm. too often the following is stated with misplaced elasticity. Don't impose your standards of beauty on me, and I won't impose my standards of beauty on you. The connoisseur of subjective beauty says this somewhat abrasively under the guise of open-mindedness. At the end of the day, this kind of regard for beauty is faulty. For there is an objectivity Mm -hmm. to beauty, and the human heart knows it. She goes on to quote from John Mark murival's beauty what it is and why it matters murival offers a powerful definition put most simply murval defines beauty as a combination of order and surprise orderliness is necessary for a thing to be beautiful because the thing has an essence that must be respected in reality this means that the thing is what it is for the sake of some end and will not change essences or its telos on a whim. This orderliness makes the thing comprehendable, approachable, observable, and predictable. Order, without surprise, however, makes something entirely banal. Without surprise, order becomes a dull, mindless drag with no creativity. Surprise adds creativity. An originality that the beholder might not have expected or imagined. For example, grass did not have to be green. It could have been blue or red, but it is green. And there is something surprising about that. So, there's, uh, there's more. This article is full of this kind we of discussion. And, and it talks about the industrial farm today. That has mm-hmm. plenty of order, mm-hmm. no surprise.
2: Or and the modern—I don't know if it talks about modern art, but it's got plenty of surprise. Yeah, uh, no
0: order. <laughs> and it talks about the monoculture farm. Uh, it doesn't allow for beauty. There's no, there's no mix there. Mm-hmm. It's all one thing. Uh, I remember a few years ago, some cows got lost over in a neighbor's cornfield. Well, I'd never been inside of a, a growing corn patch before Mm -hmm. that was conventionally grown but once I was inside of it and trying to go down the rows trying to find our cows the thing that surprised me about it was how dead it was Mm -hmm. there was no life there no (laughs) weeds no insects nothing it was just completely and totally dead except for the corn that was growing which we
2: will eventually be eating (laughs) is just so
1: exciting.
0: Yeah. So anyway, there's, uh, there's some things to consider there. And again, I'm not railing against conventional agriculture. Right. It represents 96%.
2: Right. Uh, please of, keep growing.
0: Uh, of the food that's out there. But I think one does have to ask, did God really intend for us to grow this way? The idea of conventionally grown crops that require a certain kind of pesticide to be sprayed upon them, Mm -hmm. in order for them to make it and everything else not to, man, I don't think we completely understand where that's going. And I think there's lots of connections to health Mm. that we will understand better probably in another 30, 40, 50 years, maybe less, I don't know. but all kinds of diseases that future generations will say, what in the world were they thinking if we live long enough? So anyway, farms can be beautiful because they can facilitate both the orderliness of farming and the creative liberties inherent in nature. Farms do not have to drive the birds, bugs and weeds away. Instead, they can strive to learn why they come, why they are there. Even the weeds have a purpose that can benefit the farm. If only the farmer takes the time to learn about it. So, anyway, I we had an interesting discussion the other night, and I'm not trying to repeat that discussion. But uh, farming beauty, what does this bring to your mind, Kaylin?
2: Your questions are so wonderful. Thank you. Because I try they to are leave them so entirely broad. <laughs> they are completely open to interpretation. What do you think
0: about the world and all that is in the universe? <laughs> you
2: know, it's a great place um okay the actual question you asked uh what do i think is how maybe maybe i maybe i turn maybe i give you a question um maybe you do so what do you think about the term and, and i'm gonna ask it to. anyways there was a wonderful term in the article it said uh misplaced elasticity mm. um that whole idea of that like we have this beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and therefore what I say is beautiful and what you say is beautiful, what I say is true, and what you say is true,
0: yeah, um subjectivity, right, not only in truth but also in
2: right truth, goodness and beauty and beauty. And, and goodness fits in there too that i i'm every man is good in his own eyes, so what do you how do you respond to that is there is there a connection there, like truth and our relativity and truth? Uh, do you see that relativity happening in beauty as well? What does that look like?
0: Well, I think so, and I think that um, I, I think that we live in a world where utilitarianism has mm-hmm. overtaken beauty. God did not primarily create the world;
2: as a place to be used.
0: As a place to be used, He created it beautiful. Mm. If you have walked outside and and gone about through nature on any given day, there are these worthless little flowers everywhere. Just absolutely worthless. They add beauty to the world. But when one asks, what are these good for? You wouldn't get a very good answer. Mm -hmm. Because most of them aren't good for anything. At least nothing we know about.
2: Well, I mean, they they are... I think that's the beauty of, like, God's orderliness in the... Like, the surprise in the order. There's no reason you would have to make something that does what a flower does beautiful. No. Like, you could have had a receptacle that every plant has. For reproduction. Right. But he chose to make them different colors. Yeah. And, like, some of them to be edible. And then, randomly, some of them to eat other things.
0: (laughs) And and God made food when he could have just made you know like plastic discs you know little cardboard type discs that we could have inserted into our mouths at- or
2: or manna even yeah like just we all live on a consistent diet of manna and and that's all you get that's it yeah instead you <laughs> have
0: lemons and kiwis and
2: right all kinds of food groups yes anyways which
0: are beautiful and they are also serving a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing is there's this orderliness to all of what God has created right and yet there is a beauty underneath it all and there's this surprise you know when you when you see the the face of a baby tasting a lemon for the first uh-huh. time
2: oh surprise there's
0: surprise there <laughs> Wow didn't see that one coming um and that that is the essence of beauty uh-huh. it, there's this order. Underneath everything. Mm -hmm. And yet there is surprise. We were talking the other night about Fibonacci numbers Uh and the golden ratio and the way in which that all fits together with the universe. Like there's this order that's there Mm -hmm. underneath it all. And yet amazing beauty Mm -hmm. that is built into the fabric of the universe all the way down to the DNA, all the way up to the galaxies. Mm -hmm. This spiral design
2: yeah it's it's all over and we were talking about how um i was mentioning that god is the not purest form what highest form yeah highest i ideal mm-hmm. i don't know for beauty. beauty yeah uh perfectly orderly <laughs> this a weird way of describing god but like he never changes it's all the same and yet completely surprising mm-hmm. um there's no one that can contain the idea of God. Like he is always surprising every person and like even all humanity together is too small to understand the incredible God that we serve. And so that, that God's eternal surprising nature is perfectly connected to his eternal orderly nature or um, consistent nature. And that is, so in this definition, it is the essence of beauty, and that he is the the pinnacle of what we look towards in beauty. And I think it's it's the same for truth and goodness as well. God is, he is the truth, uh, um, the way of the truth in the, the life. way of the truth in life.
0: Yeah, another quote in this article: Nature is inherently beautiful. Then, by virtue of its orderliness and its surprise, it is a marvelous harmony of the rational and creative powers of God expressed in a million different ways. And the book of Genesis explains that human beings are made in his image mm-hmm. and likeness. And so we ought to act as our creator acts, both with rationality and creativity. So when you see a picture that has those, those characteristics, there's orderliness, there is surprise, there is beauty in that. And yet you see people trying to create this thing that they think is beautiful or that they are railing against beauty and saying, you know, this elephant dung smacked onto this canvas here. This is art. It's a rebellion, really, mm-hmm. as I see it, against true beauty. Mm-hmm. It is a way of saying, you no, know, we, we can make. Something in our We don't own have image. to
2: point towards the eternal good.
0: Yeah, we, we, can... We, can, we can sit down at a piano, sit there for a minute, and call it a song with absolute silence. Like that kind of nonsense is what passes today in a postmodern world for art. And I think that the same sort of thing is true on the opposite end of things with this kind of agribusiness model mm-hmm. where we're no longer talking about agriculture. As in, how do we cultivate and care for the land? I remember having conversations with my grandpa about agriculture, and of course, he grew up when mm-hmm. they were farming with horses, and he was a big believer. I remember him saying to me, "Eric, you've got to give back. Mm-hmm. You can't keep taking from the land. You have to give back." He understood that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He had no books on, you know, uh, gr- you know, putting green manures back into the ground and all that. But he knew it. Mm -hmm. He knew it intuitively. And so there was a a piece of ground that was constantly holding water. And it was really boggy and and would cause the the plow to get stuck as they were going through. And so he ended up growing a stand of clover there and grew some amazing clover, you know, two and a half, three feet high, and then just took it and plowed it under. Mm -hmm. And for him, that's what giving back looked like.
1: Mm Yeah,
0: And so, you know, for for him, a, a good crop of corn, you know, might be 100 to 150 bushels to the acre. He wasn't getting the 250 yeah. to, to 300 that the guys today are getting with, with conventional genetically modified stuff. But you know what? He had healthy ground. Mm-hmm. He had ground that was continuing to remain healthy and that he was farming in such a way that it would still be as good or maybe even better a hundred years later than it was when he started farming it because he understood that concept that it's a living, breathing, growing thing that needs to be cared for. And so he cared for it, Mm -hmm. which meant that he wasn't just trying to extract every dollar out of the ground that he could get. And the result of that was a thing of beauty Mm -hmm. because he cared for it. And I think that this idea of beauty and care Beauty and nurture go together. Mm-hmm. And it is the complete antithesis today of what, unfortunately, agriculture that has become agribusiness is, is dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I understand. I mean, I, I, I really do feel sorry for the farmers who are stuck in this quandary, in right. this conundrum. Get bigger, get out. What are you going to do? How are you going to be able to afford the land, the taxes, all that is involved with that? Uh, I was talking with uh, brother Jerry this week and he went to the farm show and they had this massive tractor that just sold for over a million dollars there at the farm show. Massive, massive tractor. I mean, can you imagine how much ground you would have to
1: have.
0: farm and, and how, mu- how many acres of corn you would have to plant and harvest in order to pay for a million dollar tractor? I mean, that's crazy. And so a lot of these farmers, I mean, they're serfs on their own land. Mm. When your input prices are set for you and your output prices, what you can sell your product for is set for you. You don't have a business. You, you really don't. Mm. You're, you're not working in a business. You are working somebody else's business. Because here's what you're going to pay for your seed. Here's what you're going to pay for your fertilizer. Here's what you're going to pay for your genetically modified killers that you're going to put on this crop so that you can grow this. This is what you're going to do. And this is how much you're going to pay for it. You don't set those prices. They're set for you. And you're going to grow this on ground that you call your own, but it mostly belongs to the bank. And then you're going to sell it at the price that the market tells you you can sell it for. You're not a, a price maker, you're a price taker. And you hope that at the end of the day there's enough between what you started with and what you finish with to be able to pay those costs and still have something to call your own. That's not a business. You're a surf. You you're just you're just playing the the system for for other people. Now, there are Ways in which you can make a living at that and there are people who do. But if you were trying to get into farming today and you weren't a farmer right now and you were trying to buy land in some places at ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars dollars $12,000 an acre and then trying to farm that profitably, there's no way in the world. There is no way to make it. And so what you're stuck with is a system that you have to use because all of the people that tell you You know, if you're going to make it, this is how you have to farm. This is what the agriculture industrial folks say works. And so, you know, you're not going to step out of line. You have to, you have to stay there. You have to, to keep doing it. And now you're on the hook. You know, you got your, your equipment, you got your land, you got all this. And so you've got to, you've got to keep farming this way. There's no way out. There's no exit ramp. And so you have to do this, this monoculture model, because that's where your bread is buttered and that's what you got to do. And so this idea of the small family farm that is internally self-supporting, that you've got you know some grain that you're growing, you're grinding it up, you're feeding it to your little chickens here, your chickens are providing you with some eggs, not only for your family, but also to be able to sell to your neighborhood. And then you've got enough hay that's grown on your property to be able to feed your cows through the winter and you've got a a small you know 20 30 head of cattle you're doing a cow calf operation and so you've got a few calves that you're raising out some of that's going in the freezer some of that's being sold to other folks that uh, that are locally interested in in eating good good beef and and you've got this this beautiful little interconnected farm. Those used to be all over the United States. Mm-hmm. These little 120 acre plots where people had a little wood lot that they could have their firewood. They had a, a small pond that served as the, the water for for their cows, but it also had some fish in it that uh, a guy could put a line in the water and have a little little time there or go skating with your kids come January or February. It was a thing of beauty It was a place where you raise your kids. And it was a place where you could, you could make enough to be able to, to live. And yeah, you might have to have a job off farm, but that's where your heart was. And you were developing this little, this little thing of beauty. And then the 1970s happened and the Harold Butts administration, USDA, get big or get out the late 1970s that agricultural policy that now has prevailed for the last nearly 50 years mm-hmm. decimated the farming population. We lost millions of little tiny family farms that were no longer able to make it because it, they weren't big enough.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so this thing of beauty that was highly resilient, like you had a, a million little farms and the ratio of right, eyes if to one acres farm goes down. Right. The, and, and the ratio of eyes to acres, as Wes Jackson talks about in some of Wendell Berry's writings, was, was such that you had people that were paying attention to the land. Mm-hmm. They were farming it in a way that was mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. And it was a thing of beauty. And so when those went away, and what replaced it was this giant monopolistic situation where many farms are corporately owned now some are still family owned Mm
2: -hmm. i'm gonna like not really push back but a little tiny bit it's all about a pendulum and every time you swing the pendulum it's gonna go in a direction like right now we are currently headed in the direction again of a more like back to farm back to like locally grown people We are not nearly there. Like, there's a ton of regulations that are still very much pulling us in the big farm, big corp, all the things that direction. But when you had a hundred different little farms, you were, you were, how do I say this? There were problems then that there aren't now. Mm -hmm. Those problems are gone. And so while that, in its idealized form was a thing of beauty and is a thing of beauty it was not without its pain and without its problems so just like for sure not a so we were fixing things they were fixing problems quote-unquote problems but in fixing those those problems of because that's not a scalable situation you can't like right just put up another 100 or so of those if you need more food for a ne- like the next generation with the biz- with the business model that we have right now push them a little harder get another few thousand acres and the same farmer can do the same thing mm-hmm. does that make sense like
0: yeah so you could farm 100% of the ground with less than 1% of the population right which is where we're at now right and i get that model i just think that there are
2: that's a purely utilitarian model it at is. this point.
0: It is right. And it's not a thing of beauty. Although I think that I I understand that if we got rid of this system today, people would starve to death. Right. And so the people whose whose argument is we feed the world. They're absolutely right. Right. And so it is the system we voted for. It's the system that we have sustainably grown locally grown food represents about 4% of the market share currently. That's it. So all I'm saying is I'm not saying we replace it because we can't, there's no way to spin up, you know, a million little farmers. And even the guys who are interested in this find out pretty quickly, it's a lot of hard work. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, it's not the kind of thing that uh, is going to fit with your latte kind of life. Hmm. Which, you know, is just—it's it, where it's at. Right. So there's not going to be a lot of people signing up for that, or doing that anytime But it soon. is a thing of beauty. As it as is, is a thing saying. of beauty, and that's where we were going with this. Right. But I think that the, the, the need for conventional agriculture is going to continue to be there. Can we move the dial from four percent to ten percent? Could instead of ninety-six percent, ninety percent? be conventionally grown and now we have a 10% market share uh, for the folks that want to grow locally grown sustainably mm-hmm. grown uh, products and and do that in a way that again is incentivized properly because again one of the pieces of this is, is the conventional farming subsidy model
2: okay so w- let me just understand what's happening right now is that the government is saying is this right or the USDA is saying like, they put subsidies on certain products so that Correct. a farmer can like is able to sell his whatever he's selling at half the price that it would normally be sold or whatever.
0: It's one way to look at it. I, it's just and if you grow corn, we're going to pay you a subsidy. In other words, we we want cheap food here. And one way that we can do that is to subsidize a product. So if you will grow corn, we are going to pay you. We're going to write you a check. In addition to whatever you whatever the market pays you, I'm going to write you a check for this amount more. Gotcha. And so and
2: because little farmers cannot do it can't grow to that level, they will not be subsidized and therefore they can't compete with market prices. Well,
0: they're gonna they're gonna be subsidized if they're growing corn or soybeans oh. or wheat, but it's all about scale. Got it. And so you're you're not going to make as much growing a hundred acres. As you are, if you're growing a thousand acres, and so the subsidy check's going to be less, which means that the amount of money that you're going to have to go towards buying your million-dollar tractor and all the accoutrements that go with it are going to be less. So it's a matter of scale. If you're going to be able to make it to buy your seed, to buy your your all the other products that go into to creating this and 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 doing this, yeah, you, you know the margin's very small, and so. Right now, the products that are subsidized. If I'm going to grow corn, I'm subsidized. If I'm going to grow cabbages, not so much. Gotcha. Makes sense. There's not a cabbage subsidy. (laughs) Now, there are specialty crops supports, specialty crop block grant. There's other kinds of things that, if you're growing vegetables, are there. But again, most of the little guys are not going to be able to access those and figure out the, the ways through the system to help them. And so So the
2: point is that they can, you can make it work. It's just very difficult or
0: it's not subsidized. So you're growing with whatever the market will sustain.
2: Got it. And the market is being intentionally pushed towards cheaper.
0: Right. Well, people love cheap food. And so the biggest cost in food is labor. Gotcha. So that means that much of what we eat. If you asked in your grocery store, where does this come from? It comes from places where labor is cheap. And so if you pick up that head of garlic, where did it come from? Most likely China. Chinese garlic is pretty much what is commercially available here. Now it's garbage (laughs) and compared to something that could be grown here, good quality hardneck garlic. It's, yeah, it's night and day in terms of the kind of flavor and quality but that's true of most things and so you know it's grown in such a way that it can be harvested short of ripeness
2: transported it,
0: it can be transported while it's still not ripe and and get to you and you can have your slightly green bananas that then hopefully will ripen all they sit on your counter <laughs> you know and, and that's the way we roll here it's the way we have operated all the way along and so having a local food system would mean that if there was a massive famine, that people locally would have an option for food that was not shipped halfway across the country right. or halfway across the world, that there is a farmer that's in my community that's, that's growing. not just growing corn. <laughs> yeah, but he's actually growing something that people could actually eat as in today or right. very soon. But having that has lots of challenges to it. Mm-hmm. But it's also a, a thing of beauty. I just went on a giant rant about <laughs> agriculture.
1: <laughs>
2: it's okay. I, I, It was a good rant. It was a good one. I wasn't sure if at any point during the rant I was supposed to stop you and say, hold on, what yeah. are we talking about? But I think, how long was it? no it's good not very long yeah Um,
0: you know if people are going to stay with us they're going to stay with us (laughs) if they're not you know
2: I like there's okay this is off off mic off go ahead I don't think you're going to lose people by saying like we have a problem
0: I frankly don't care no 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 I I know
2: I know I know but like thank you you are good enough. Um, I just wonder if there's a like what I'm looking for, and this is probably the the just a me thing, but like, mm-hmm. wh- where's the solution? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, okay, we have a problem. Great, I know that. Like every time I go to this grocery store, I know that. But where's the solution? Like, I don't have money, or no, I have money, I don't have how much C- money. Do you have? <laughs> Just, I don't have seed in my backyard. It's winter. Yeah. And we live half of our time in winter. So like that's a whole lake of issues that jumping into is like, okay, so I don't want to be a farmer, but I want to eat locally grown, sustainably grown food.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Where the stink do I start? Like.
0: Start where you are.
2: Use what you have to do. What you can't. So like that's. I think you have, to, like, yes, we have to get a kick in the pants and recognize, like, okay, we got to start somewhere.
0: Well, I think we but, have to recognize it's important before we're going to start. And frankly, right. I don't think we think it's important. And I don't think we're going to think it's important until people are starving to death, frankly. And and that's sad. But I think that's the truth.
2: Right. When our topsoil gets to the level where it's no longer, it's already no longer producing, like, nutrition, Well, I think
0: that that people don't understand. Like we have a bank account. A bank account as a people that has built up over hundreds of years. Right. There were trees Trees that covered the entire United States and they dropped their leaves every year. And those built up the topsoil that now is the bank account that is being spent Mm -hmm. at an alarming rate. And so not only are we spending every dime that you and your children had, and our national debt is now some $34 trillion and growing, but we've also spent most of the topsoil bank account.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's that's absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. to me. It when is. I, when I think about the way in which our farming methods and the way in which we have spent, like there's no tomorrow, the topsoil bank account mm-hmm. And how in the world are we going to replenish that at scale? The whole giving back, right, right. At scale. Again, you can replenish it. It just takes 300 years to
2: do it. And there's no way to do it with the number of people that we are currently feeding.
0: Or the way that we're currently farming. Right. There's no way to do it. And so there is an expiration date on much of the ground that is being conventionally farmed right now.
2: But as we have done with debt and many other things in the government. We have kicked the kid down the road as and far we'll as we can get it. And we'll keep kicking it. And as long as the pesticides and the, as long as that works to make it live long enough for us to get another year down, it's fine.
0: Yeah. It's fine. Everything's fine. And it's going to work until it doesn't. And once it doesn't, Hey, we'll trust in this thing called technology. And hopefully by that time we'll have come up with a better way. Like that's what I keep hearing. Oh, the future will figure it out.
2: Right. We can go really? on a spaceship. <laughs>
0: really? And and I think there's just all kinds of, of that sort of thinking today. Mm-hmm. That if you read Wendell Berry, who's just a wise old Kentucky farmer, who was waving the flag back in the 1980s in regards to some of these things, the gift of good land, you know, read books like that. Think about these things.
2: Mm-hmm. I do think it is not... And maybe it's the community that I'm in now, and the fact that I live in a farming community. But I think there are more people invested in this issue than we realize. Sometimes the whole homesteading idea yeah. is something that is is taking root. It's because, and I think largely in part because we're searching for beauty, we are looking for something that's beyond just the yes, like
0: American commercialism,
2: right? And so and consumerism. There's this picture of that little farm, that mm-hmm. little house and a little land that is incredibly beautiful. It's connected to the whole idea of order and surprise. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we were talking about at the dinner table the other night was what, ha- what could have happened, what was able to happen in the garden mm. that... Garden of Eden. Yes, in the Garden of Eden that was not a... Like, what could we do now? What do we do now that we could have done in the Garden of Eden? Like, when there's a perfect garden, what do you do to a perfect garden?
1: Yeah.
2: And you do the same, in large part, a lot of the same things you do in a not perfect garden. Right. There's this beautiful opportunity that God gave. There's so much wildness in nature already that God gave us the opportunity to, to tend and to keep, to care for and to cut back, that like there are ways that we can shape that in beautiful forms mm-hmm. and that having a really beautiful garden attended garden mm-hmm. is in many ways, this, this picture that we, I think we often think of like the work of a garden as pulling weeds mm-hmm. and pulling weeds and watering. And so if you don't have that, like, well, what do you have in a garden? There's so much yeah, and doing it well and doing it sustainably and ethically. That was those were all things that like God from the very beginning, he wanted us to learn and, sh- and figure out how to do. We just now have lots of like there's a lot of hard work involved. Yeah. Now.
0: Well, and I think man is constantly trying to get away from the hard work. Mm. Like part of the curse was you will you will eat y- y- your food by the, oh, the, sweat, the of your sweat of your brow. It's like, yeah, we'll see about that.
2: Let's get our million dollar tractor.
0: Yeah. Let's do it without the spread of our brow. Can we do that? Let's figure out how we can quit sweating and still eat. And I think that's part of the problem rather than just embracing. Okay. God has given us this beautiful opportunity to take good land and to take good care of it in a way to pass it on to our children in a way that will be, will be a blessing to them. And to do that in a way that will not make us rich, but it will provide for us our daily bread but we are not satisfied with that, and we're not going to be satisfied with that. Instead, we want our million dollar tractor. We want what we want, and we're going to get it i, I was uh, I was reading in in what Matters Economics for a New Commonwealth," and I quoted a line from that this morning in my other podcast recording. but he has a an essay called "Major in Homecoming. Mm. And he said, commencement speakers conventionally advise graduates that they must not think of the end of school at the end of education. They must continue to think for themselves as students and to study and learn for as long as they live. I agree with that as far as it goes, but it does not go far enough. I am now obliged to say to you graduates, not only that your education must continue, but also that it must change. It is necessary to say to you, moreover, that the institutions that so far have helped to educate you are going to have to change as an loyal alumni and responsible citizen. You're going to have to help them to change even as you change yourselves. I'm taking this theme of this talk from my friend, Wes Jackson of the lands Institute in Kansas, who has said correctly that our system of education until now has had only one major upward mobility.
1: Mm.
0: Now Wes says a second major needs to be added. And the name of this major will be homecoming. Hmm. The upward mobility major has put our schools far too often at the service of what we are calling overconfidently our economy, quote unquote. Education has increasingly been reduced to job training, preparing young people, not for responsible adulthood and citizenship, but for expert servitude to the corporations. There has been an ongoing feeble objection to this reduction but most people have been willing to ignore or tolerate it or even applaud it despite the obvious dangers. Mm -hmm. Now, however, the failure of the economy and its subservient institutions has become too obvious to be denied. We are now facing a hardship long deferred. We have no choice but to do better. And so he goes on to talk about the challenges, the issues, and then what he means by majoring in homecoming.
2: And do I understand correctly? Like when he says homecoming, he means going back home. So,
0: right. And working to develop a place. The place. So he finishes this way You graduates will have to work for such a change in the schools for the sake of generations to come. But you also will have to work for such a change in yourselves, reading and conversing and living across the disciplinary boundaries for your own sake, for the sake of your own homecoming. This effort has already been started for you by many people all over the country and all over the world who are working for local economies that are authentically conserving. Beyond its benefit to the survival of a good, beautiful, and livable world, this work of homecoming has a lot to recommend it. It is endlessly interesting and endlessly productive of decent, undamaging pleasures. So this idea of developing local places and local economies
2: requires a interdisciplinary. So that when you go to school, you can't just say, all right, I'm going to know about this one thing. Yeah.
0: Major in underwater basket weaving. (laughs) Right. And bring that niche to the world that I'm going to have to think about agriculture. I'm going to think I have to think about education of young people and children we have to think about because how I to sustain a local place. place. Yes, in in a way, right. and, and I think that's the the thing is that local places are a thing of beauty,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that for the for a long time in the United States specifically, that was like the farm was the essence of that
0: at, of at least the a, local place. It was a part of the local place that was super important because that's where people got their food. Right, was from a local farm, and the local community. And the local farm went together. Mm -hmm. And so then when you have urbanization and everybody's just like giving up and moving to the city, you've got all these people in one place. Many times there was unemployment and all the challenges that that they faced through the period of the Great Depression. When people on on farms like this really...
2: Life didn't change. It was always hard.
0: (laughs) It was always hard. Yeah, it was hard because we didn't have any money, but we really didn't have any money before either. So that was just the reality Mm -hmm. but I think that when we lost these farms when we lost these farming communities Mm -hmm. right we lost these little places where people came back home and majored in homecoming and said I'm gonna stay here I'm gonna work to make this place better we've given that up for well I graduate from a college with 150,000 dollars of student loan debt now where am I gonna go and get a job so that I can pay this debt off right and You know, the answer is whoever's the highest bidder. You go wherever the money is. You go wherever the job is. You do whatever you got to do. And so for me, and we've talked about this a lot, you know, right up the hill from his here is my great, 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 great grandfather. uh, Five greats buried there. And for the most part, pretty much all the way up until my grandfather also buried there. Same cemetery or a very local place. Within a mile and a half of where we sit here is the house that was built by my great 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 grandfather back in 1860. Just across the tracks from where we sit here, house built by my great 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 grandfather Jacob Wise in 1871 or two. He had a little girl that married George Heimlich. My great great grandfather built the house that's right here at Victory Acres raised 12 children there. So there's this deep sense of rootedness in place mm-hmm. that's here. Right? That that I've grown up. There's never been a question about where home was. I knew where home was. And I've been able to see a lot of the world and experience a lot of the world, but from a local place. And that sense of rootedness and that sense of belonging to a place and to a people uh has great challenges.
2: Right? Because it comes with baggage.
0: It does. But it also comes with incredible opportunity. Right. Because when you can see the world from a local place and have an understanding of the world through that lens, mm-hmm. it's an incredible gift. But it's amazing to me. It's saddening to me how few people today have that. Right. And this placelessness and this sense of, like, I can just go wherever I need to go. They're like a man without a country, mm-hmm. and so majoring in homecoming is as Wendell Berry talks about, I, I think is a hugely connected to this idea of beauty and place and belonging. And I think it's needed today
1: mm-hmm.
0: because there's work that needs to be done in developing the kind of contrast community, the kind of community that that will stand in contrast to the world around and that as the as the darkness grows darker that these these places will be little cities set on a hill that cannot be hid. Mm-hmm. That the life of together of the people of God in that place will will shine and people will be drawn to to the light. Mm-hmm. I think that's super important.
2: I agree. I think it's connected to the whole idea of sticking it out mm-hmm. because I'm, we've talked about this before. But the ideal versus the real, what contrast community as a word
0: mm-hmm.
2: is an incredible idea.
0: The wish dream. Well,
2: the wish dream is as amazing, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer right? would say. But when it comes right down to it, what does that look like? Work on the right,
0: right? <laughs> Crazy hard work.
2: So yesterday, and I'm going to bring this up because I can. Where is it? Yesterday, I was reading in Colossians, mm-hmm. and Colossians one twenty-one mm-hmm. through 23, is talking about, um, Paul has just been telling the Colossian church, uh, he's thankful for them, basically, mm-hmm. uh, explaining what they have in Christ, um, He is before, he's talking about Christ. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This whole idea like Mm -hmm. Christ is our all in all. And then in verse 21 it says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you. This picture of reconciliation is throughout the chapter. Reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Mm. Like I, I wrote, that is of all of the, 2024 goals that I've had. That is God's goal for me. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 a lofty one, How, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Mm. Um, and I was just meditating on that, and then I read the next passage. This is my job. This is my part of it. If indeed, you continue in faith, firmly established and steadfast. Mm. And he goes on to like describe what that looks like, but that's it. Mm -hmm. like that's that's the one job i have one job yeah um to stay firmly rooted and grounded in him and just and anyway so i think that picture of sticking it out Mm -hmm. is something that you see over and over i think wendell berry is the one that talks about how that is the what is it the cardinal virtue the fidelity 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 Mm -hmm. is the like sticking it out so you see that in um all kinds of literature i just read a book called the portrait of a lady finished the book middlemarch like over and over in literature and other places you see this picture of fidelity and sticking with it yeah in all kinds of things in a place with a person with a community yeah. that that and that, that is most beautiful when it is most tested mm. that when you are um Like that, Jesus stayed on the cross. Mm -hmm. Like, and when God asks us um, to to walk with Him, it's not this, like, okay, I've got to get this done and I got to get that done. It is a staying with Him. It is Mm -hmm. just a sticking it out, choosing to day by day do the right thing, do the next right thing. Yeah. And that that happens in a place with a people. Mm -hmm. That's not an accident. And so if you are. Like if things are getting tough, and you're questioning, like maybe I need to leave. Probably not. Right. Like, by and large, our, in, in, in our in our culture right now, like the culture that I have experienced growing up, so many people have like their automatic knee jerk reaction mm-hmm. to difficulty is movement. Mm-hmm. So if this is hard. I need to figure out how I can move so that it's no longer going to be hard. Yeah. But I mean, from what I'm seeing and experiencing and reading, like sticking it out is the whole point. Just stay.
0: Be faithful. Yeah. And the idea that faith and faithfulness go together. Right. Abraham was fully convinced that what God promised he was also able to do. Romans Mm 4.21. And that Abraham's faith was demonstrated in his faithfulness. Mm-hmm. He was just fully convinced. And and that's what was counted to him for righteousness, his willingness to stick with it. You know, a lot of people say, God promised me a, a son and now 25 years later, and here I am 100 and I still don't have it. I guess that was just not in the cards for me. Mm-hmm. And yet, Abraham was fully convinced
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> What God had promised he was able to do. Right. He never gave up. He never quit believing. Mm-hmm. He and had
2: made a choice.
0: He made a choice and he stuck with it. And, and I think that, you know, there's something to be said for that, for us, mm-hmm. wherever we find ourselves, just sticking with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we got to figure out how to land this little plane here. <laughs> no idea. We've gone all over the place. Agricultural <laughs> policy of the 1970s all the way down here to Abraham and faithfulness. That's right. But uh, thanks for taking time today. Absolutely. Great conversation for gleaning and gathering. God bless.